You're listening to Calvin's Institutes. Lesson 19. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. We come back now to Calvin. We have six more classes. And we're going to move to uh, lecture, let's see what the number is, 18 today. There's a little bit more to do with election and reprobation, but rather than risking getting started on that again and um, getting further behind, I think I will wait on that critique you see on uh, the previous, uh, the end of the previous lecture, uh, the critique, uh, I'll work that in at some point uh, in the course before we uh, end. But I'd like, in, I'd like to go on today to uh, resurrection, uh, the chapter on the final resurrection. It may be that we could even get back to uh, the critique of Calvin's doctrine of election and reprobation. Uh, today, but if we don't do it today, we'll do it another day. Okay, we come to chapter 25 of book 3, which is the last chapter of book 3. It's called The Final Resurrection. This is Calvin's uh, treatment of eschatology. Calvin uh, is famous for his treatment of election. People identify that with Calvin very quickly. He's not so famous for his treatment of eschatology. In fact, um, Calvin's eschatology is largely overlooked. But uh, it's important in the Institutes and in Calvin's thought. So we want to give it um, adequate attention today. It's just uh, one chapter here at the end of book Three, but uh, I think uh, an important uh, chapter. So let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer as we pray in the words of John Calvin. Grant, Almighty God, since we have already entered in hope upon the threshold of our eternal inheritance, and know that there is a mansion for us in heaven, since Christ our head and the first fruits of our salvation has been received there. Grant that we may proceed more and more in the way of your holy calling until at length we reach the goal and so enjoy the eternal glory of which you have given us a taste in this world by the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Bondell, in his uh, treatment of uh, Calvin's theology, calls um, this chapter, chapter 25, the crowning act, the crowning act of book three. And indeed, we could see it as the crowning act of the first uh, three books. We have looked at God the Father. God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We've looked at uh, creation and providence. 
in the coming of Christ, in the work of Christ, in the application of redemption. And uh, this is the crowning act of all of that as we come uh, to Calvin's eschatology. This first section, section 1 of chapter 25, you read that through carefully, you'll find that so many of the themes that Calvin has already talked about earlier, uh, he mentions again uh, in these um, sentences that make up section 1 of chapter 25. Reminds me of the great uh, west window at uh, Princeton University Chapel, that um, beautiful neo-Gothic chapel uh, constructed in 1925, um, has a lot of um, impressive stained glass windows. But uh, the west window uh, is the second coming of Christ. As you look around uh, the chapel, uh, you see different events, biblical events and historical events, uh, in the stained glass windows of the chapel, and then turn and look at the west window, the second coming of Christ, you'll find many of those themes and pictures um, presented again in the west window under the general idea of the second coming of Christ. And so as we look at uh, the beginning of uh, Calvin's chapter 25 here, uh, many of the ideas that he's already addressed uh, will uh, be repeated very, very briefly uh, in uh, these uh, words. You might say that for Calvin, uh, eschatology is not simply the end of all things. The word, of course, means last things, and Calvin doesn't use that word. He talks about the final resurrection, but uh, in using that title, he is um, dealing with what we commonly call eschatology, the study of last things. But it's not uh, merely uh, for Calvin, the end of all things, but it's a kind of majestic summing up of all things, like the West Window uh, in the Princeton University Chapel. is a kind of majestic summing up of the whole uh, scope of biblical and post-biblical history as depicted in the windows uh, of the chapel. One writer uh, has put it uh, this way, for Calvin, a fruitful consideration of the eternal glory of the believer in Christ was the logical end and crown of an orderly theological discussion on God's grace. So, this whole book three has been about God's grace. Book two, about God's grace. Book one, about God's grace, but... Um, Certainly, book three about God's grace. And uh, here we have the logical end of God's grace and the crown of an orderly theological discussion of God's grace. So I, I think we could say, despite the fact that uh, people generally think that eschatology is not very important for Calvin and he, he doesn't uh, make uh, much use of it, uh, that um, it is a topic that uh, concerned Calvin and um, has a place in, in the Institutes. Uh, by the way, not only 325 is about eschatology, but um, Book 3, Chapter 9, Meditation 
on the future life. So you should note uh, those two places, not only here, but uh, earlier in Book uh, 3, as we were looking at uh, Calvin's practical description of the Christian life, and one of those chapters tells us to focus our attention on heaven. That's a chapter that could be linked with 325 uh, as um, summing up Calvin's um, eschatology. I think you, you find, too, the importance of, of this doctrine for Calvin, not only by reading the Institutes, especially 3.9 and 3.25, but other places, too, but uh, in reading Calvin's letters, it's impressive when you read the letters of Calvin, dealing often with uh, real serious problems, writing to people in difficulty, persecution, even facing death, how often Calvin will uh, point them to heaven or to the judgment, to the summing up of all things by God as a source of comfort and encouragement uh, for those um, who are facing, as Calvin says right at the beginning of chapter 25, hard military service. That's his description of what we're up against in this life. Hard military service. But there's an end to it. And not just an end, but a, a glorious uh, consummation. And a victorious uh, summing up of all things. We can look forward to that end uh, even as we um, move through this life with its problems uh, and its difficulties. Another uh, place where you uh, see Calvin's uh, interest in the end times or better to put it I think in Calvin's language the final resurrection uh, is in his prayers. I don't know if you've noticed but so I've been using Calvin's prayers uh, at the beginning of each of um, these lectures. I think every single prayer uh, that uh, I have used and almost every prayer that I have read from Calvin ends in heaven or ends in the second coming of Christ. I won't go back through all of those, but uh, if I just turn back to the prayer that I used uh, beginning the lecture on election. Just break into that toward the end. We may be led to Christ only as the fountain of thy election, in whom also is set before us the certainty of our salvation through thy gospel, until we shall at length be gathered with him into that eternal glory which he has procured for us by his own blood. Amen. So the prayer ends in heaven. Turn back to the lecture on justification. Until at last we stand spotless before thee in that day when Christ shall appear for the salvation of all his people. Amen. And I think if you made a study of Calvin's prayers, we have really uh, 
scores of Calvin's prayers, perhaps a uh, hundred or more, uh, you would find that uh, every single prayer, I think, almost every single prayer, found very few that uh, don't follow this form, uh, lead us uh, right up to the coming of Christ and to uh, the glories of heaven. So for Calvin, this is all important and wonderful and strengthening and uh, something that uh, Christians should turn their thoughts to uh, continually. Another way to um, put in context Calvin's uh, chapter 25 is to think of it as his theology of hope. He begins in um, 325.1 by saying that we are grievously exercised under hard military service and uh, we then must cling to what is elsewhere taught concerning the nature of hope. Uh, Book 3 begins with faith, you remember, short chapter on the Holy Spirit and then uh, that long section on faith and then we move to repentance and then justification and then prayer then election and now the final resurrection so we have gone from from faith to hope in book uh, three Uh, Calvin's uh, catechism the one that he did in 1537 uh, for uh, Geneva is very beautiful and expresses this idea in a, in a powerful way. I'll read just a little bit of that. Thus, faith believes that God is real. Hope awaits the opportune time for him to demonstrate his reality. Faith believes that God is our Father. Hope believes that he will always act as such toward us. Faith believes that eternal life is given to us. Hope awaits the time when it will be revealed. Faith is the foundation on which hope is supported. Hope nourishes and entertains faith. So, we have faith, but we have hope too. And uh, we come to the final resurrection, we move to Calvin's theology of hope. Yes, uh, Calvin's Catechism, 1537. Uh, There are a number of books that include uh, Calvin's writings in the library. I don't know that I can give you the title of one uh, that would have it, but uh, something like Calvin's Catechism's uh, you'll find uh, that. If you can't find it, check with me again and I'll let you know for sure. This is Calvin's Catechism of 1537. Another um, interesting point, an important point, I think he, uh, here in Calvin's uh, chapter on the final resurrection is uh, how Christocentric it is. Uh, he 
says we must keep our eyes fixed on Christ as we wait upon heaven. So our, our focus is on, on Christ and not really on heaven. It's on Christ, although we, we meditate on the future life and we look forward to heaven. But um, we do that by fixing our attention on Christ. Because Calvin is going to be very uh, concerned to warn us against undue curiosity, speculation, date setting, all of that. Calvin has no use for any of that. By now you know he's, he's going to rail against um, undue speculation or useless questions or uh, trifling curiosity. So the focus of our attention is on Christ. And he pictures uh, Christ in this chapter as uh, the mirror. Uh, we'll see that in which we, we see our own resurrection. It's interesting that in his treatment of election, Christ is the mirror in which we see our election. Remember, we can't, we can't um, depend on our good works to give us assurance, totally, in themselves, because those good works are weak and faltering, and we don't have access to the decree directly. We can't go directly to God the Father and see our name in a book or have access to his mind. But Christ is the mirror of our election. As we look at Christ, uh, then we see ourselves as elect. And Christ is also uh, the mirror of our resurrection. As we look at Christ, we see heaven. We see heaven assured for us. So he is the mirror of our election and also the assurance of, of our hope. Look to the past, to our election, we see Christ. We look to the future, to heaven, we see Christ. And uh, Calvin has encouraged us both in his treatment of election and in his treatment of the final resurrection uh, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Warning against curiosity and speculation. Let me go into that again because Calvin is, is so concerned about it. 325.11, he says, I not only refrain personally from superfluous investigation of useless matters, thinking particularly now about details of um, the end times and heaven and hell, but... I also think I ought to guard against contributing to the levity of others by answering them. So, he's not going to entertain trifling questions. What we get here in 325 and elsewhere is a cautious, restrained, practical handling of the end times. And that is all the more remarkable because uh, in the 16th century, there was a pretty feverish preoccupation with eschatology and um, a lot of speculation. You get some in Luther, 
even Melanchthon, who is uh, cautious and maybe maybe overly cautious at times. He he doesn't want to get into election because um, of the questions that it raises, much to Calvin's dismay. But uh, Melanchthon will get into eschatological speculation. And um, the English Protestants who came to the continent during the reign of Mary Tudor in England, forerunners of the Puritans were very much into eschatological writings. And above all, Many of the radicals, in extreme ways, were involved in eschatological speculation, including setting dates and locating places where Christ would come back and rule. So it's not that there's no interest generally out there in all of this. And what is is remarkable is that at a time when uh, there was this feverish preoccupation with such matters. Uh, Calvin is so sober and restrained and cautious. He says, let this then be our short way out to be satisfied with the mirror and its dimness until we see him face to face. Here he uses mirror again, but it's not uh, for Christ here. It's now we see See through a glass darkly, the image that Paul gives us. The mirror, by the way, can be both a mirror in which you see your reflection and a glass which you see through. In uh, Calvin's use of the uh, word, it's not um, one or the other. It can be either. So sometimes he can use the word that is translated mirror in um, McNeil battles as glass and other times as mirror in the use that we are accustomed to. Everybody knows that uh, Calvin did not write a commentary on Revelation. One older writer has praised Calvin for that. Thomas Philpot said, Calvin expounded all the books of Scripture except the Revelation. That overstates it a bit. He did not actually write a commentary on every single book. Some of the shorter books um, don't have um, commentary from Calvin. All the major books do. But um, Philpott said, Calvin expounded all the books of Scripture except the Revelation, which his not doing of was an excellent commentary, according to this older writer. Uh, Calvin said that he did not um, write a commentary on Revelation because he did not understand it. And um, people have praised him for that, and some have blamed him. For that, uh, one writer said, "Almost wise Calvin, not writing a commentary on Revelation." But um, Andrew Davis, I think, uh, has a a good point. Uh, Davis is listed on the last page of the outline for today, 
Andrew Martin Davis, a new assessment of John Calvin's eschatology, which was his Ph.D. dissertation at uh, Southern Baptist Seminary, which he did in 1998, and uh, by far the best treatment of Calvin's eschatology that we have. There are one or two older works that uh, treat it also, but uh, Davis is um, superior uh, in his treatment of Calvin's um, eschatology. Uh, Davis says, Calvin failed to go right up to the limits of what God had tendered to us, thus leaving some of the field of Scripture untilled and unfruitful. So Davis doesn't praise Calvin for not writing commentary on Revelation. But if this is part of the Bible, then it's of value. And um, for Calvin not to write on Revelation, according to Davis, silly part of Scripture, untilled and unfruitful. But uh, I would still defend Calvin on this point, because Calvin did not say that nobody should write on Revelation. He just said, I'm not going to do it, because I don't understand it. But uh, he encouraged others to do it. So he's not saying this is a useless book uh, that uh, we should not be concerned about. But he did not feel that he had the grasp of the book. Uh, undoubtedly, he had studied it in order to be able to say that. He did not uh, have a way of, um, of understanding it that he felt would be valuable to the church. And so he restrained himself from doing something that uh, he felt would not be of great use, at the same time encouraging others to do that. Yes, we do have that in the library. Yes, I had ordered that for the library, and that's available in the library. He does have a commentary on Daniel, and um, you have to look at the prophetic parts of that, but he seemed to, that's a good point. He seemed to, to have a handle on that and feel that uh, he understood how to apply that. Yes, that's right. Not uh, for Revelation, but I, as I recall his treatment of Daniel, it's more historical. As Daniel looks ahead and then you see the fulfillment coming and the various empires that uh, follow up leading up to the Roman Empire. Calvin seemed to feel more comfortable uh, with that than Revelation, which could be futurist or preterist, or we just uh, have different uh, possibilities of interpreting that book. He did also handle Ezekiel, which is not an easy book, but uh, Calvin did not complete that. He, he died um, before he was able to complete his commentary on Ezekiel. Well, what I think I'd like to do in talking about uh, this chapter is simply to take some uh, themes, specific topics, and go through those one by one uh, with you, beginning with the idea of the last days. Uh, Calvin uses this language uh, to describe uh, the, the whole New Testament period, I think, following carefully how the Bible uses, uh, the New Testament uses, and the Old Testament too, this language. The time from Christ's coming uh, to the day of judgment. That could be called the last days, or it could be called the end times, or it could be called the last hour, which means that 
we're living in the last hour. So did Calvin live in the last hour. We're living in the end times. And we're living in, in the last days. The way Calvin explains this, the reason, the reason God chooses to speak of this time from the coming of Christ to the day of judgment, this whole period uh, as um, the last uh, days, is so that we would be content with the perfection of Christ's teaching. Now, I'm quoting here, not from 325, but from Book 4, Chapter 8, Section 7. That's 487. We come to Book 4, the rest of our course, as we look at Calvin's uh, Doctrine of the Church, primarily, in Book 4. But uh, Calvin says there and elsewhere uh, that um, we live between the comings of, of Christ this first coming and the second coming, we live in this period between the comings of, uh, of Christ, and um, we are satisfied uh, with the, the last closing word of Christ. I think his emphasis um, here is that the last word has come. God has given us the last word, gave us many words leading up to the coming of Christ, and then the last word is the word of Christ. In Calvin's understanding, that's the New Testament. Not only the words of Christ, but the, the epistles that um, apply and explain and elaborate on the words of Christ as written by the followers of Christ. So we don't expect another word. That's all there is. That's all there needs to be. And so we live in the last days. So these last days are, these days are called the last days. Presumably, if they were called something else, we might think another word was coming. But um, Calvin's um, concern here is to say this, this language, which is so final and in a way seems strange to us because the last hour has been going on now for a long time. But it reminds us not of the duration of the time or anything like that, but it reminds us that God has finally spoken in his Son. And that is the last word, the great closing word of the gospel. Uh, this period, uh, the last days, will be marked, however long the period extends, by the uh, worldwide advance uh, of the gospel, internally and externally. In other words, uh, the church will advance externally throughout the world. And God's people will advance internally through sanctification. So, that's happening now. Church is spreading, and God is working uh, in the hearts of his people. Uh, not only is, is God working in this period that we can call the last days, but somebody else is working too, and that is Antichrist. During this period, not only will there be the spread of the gospel and the deepening of the commitment of Christians uh, to the Lord, but there will be 
constant opposition to both of these movements. Constant opposition to the spread of the gospel and constant opposition to personal, individual righteousness. And the figure, the word uh, that's used by Calvin for that is Antichrist. Calvin never really sees Antichrist as, as one person. He doesn't see Antichrist as the Pope. doesn't apply that to an individual Pope or to all of the Popes. But Calvin uses that word as a summary word uh, for whatever the source of opposition is to uh, the advance of the Christian faith, externally or internally. Now, of course, uh, in his view, Roman Catholicism of his day was, was one source of opposition, but uh, it was not uh, the only uh, source of opposition. In his uh, commentary on 2 Thessalonians 2.7, where you would go to find further information from Calvin on his understanding of Antichrist, he says the name Antichrist does not designate a single individual, but a single kingdom. So the word is not uh, a reference to an individual, but a kingdom which extends throughout many generations. So, Antichrist is, is the force of uh, evil, uh, the work of the devil in its various expressions uh, that um, operates uh, during this entire period uh, in opposition to the advance of the gospel externally and internally. Generally, um, 16th century figures and even Westminster Confession of Faith in the 17th century identified Protestant figures, identified the Pope as Antichrist. But um, we don't have that in Calvin. And that um, expression uh, has been abandoned, I think, largely uh, as far as... um, applying it only and specifically uh, to the Pope. The Westminster Confession of Faith in the form that we use um, does not identify uh, the Pope as Antichrist. Does it not stand historically with uh, interpretations of the Antichrist prior to him? Is he as a person or anything? How does Calvin understand how other people have understood Antichrist? Antichrist is original himself. Or is this an original idea with with Calvin? Um, I don't know. I don't think it's an original idea with Calvin. The first thing I'd want to check is is what does Augustine hold here? And I'm sure Augustine doesn't identify um, Antichrist as one single individual, but um, as a force of evil. So I expect uh, Calvin is so often is deriving his interpretation from from Augustine. Uh, There were people prior to Calvin, however, that did hold to the idea that a single individual was Antichrist. John Wycliffe 
believed that the Pope was Antichrist. So did Dante. Certain popes were Antichrist. So you can get, uh, even within the Catholic tradition, uh, the idea that uh, popes were Antichrist. I expect that um, Dante and Wycliffe would have said there could have been more than one Antichrist at the same time, but they did apply this to individuals. But I don't see Calvin ever doing that. He's not saying, you know, the Pope is Antichrist or Saddam Hussein is Antichrist or somebody else, Hitler is Antichrist. Uh, he's, he sees this as, um, as a movement uh, of evil in opposition to uh, the good work uh, that God is doing. Well, let's come to the idea of millennium next. Uh, Calvin, in our section uh, for today, um, opposes the Kiliast, as he calls them, the Kiliast, or the millenarians. Um, depends on whether you use the Greek form or the Latin form. Kiliast is the um, Greek form for people that believe in the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, and millenarians would be the Latin form for uh, the same thing, literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. I don't think we should try to understand Calvin in terms of Premillennialist, postmillennialist, or amillennialist. Well, those are more modern designations for different theories related to uh, the millennium. But um, it's hard, in any case, to see Calvin as espousing anything close to what uh, would be called premillennialism. Uh, Calvin opposes the idea of thousand-year reign of Christ on earth primarily because he doesn't want to limit Christ's reign that way. In other words, Calvin wants to say Christ is reigning now. It's not that he's going to reign someday on earth, but he is reigning now on earth. That makes him sound much more like an amillennialist. And again, he follows Augustine in this. Augustine was the one who changed the history of interpretation from something that may have been more like modern premillennialism to something much more like modern amillennialism. Calvin, as Augustine, held that uh, the thousand years, that's a reference, uh, of course, to Revelation 20, uh, depicts not a thousand years to come, at the end of, of the church age, in other words, we're now in the end times, and then at the end of the end times, there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. But Augustine first, and then Calvin, identify the millennium as the reign of Christ during the church age. In other words, we've already seen that in the end times, the gospel will advance both internally and externally, through the work of the Holy Spirit and through the reign of Christ. And that's the millennium. That's taking place now in the 16th century and now in the 
21st century. Next, the uh, intermediate state. What happens to people when they die? Is there an intermediate uh, state? Calvin was, was very concerned about this point. Gives it much more attention uh, than he gives almost any other question related to either the end times or the fate of the soul and the body. What Calvin teaches, as he explains it in 325.6, is that when a believer dies... Uh, that uh, believer is taken directly to heaven and enters into blessed rest, he says. Blessed rest, 325.6. But uh, that, that rest is not soul sleep. It is a conscious sharing of uh, God's uh, presence. While awaiting, Calvin says, the enjoyment a promised glory. So, there's consciousness, there's rest, but there's something yet to come. There is, is rest, but not yet glory. I was reading a book uh, just over the last uh, few days in which uh, the writer in the preface was talking about um, his mother, believer, in England who had since died. And uh, he put it this way, she has entered into the closer presence of Christ. I've heard it expressed that way before, but I uh, really responded to that idea. We're always in the presence of Christ. We're in the presence of Christ now. But in heaven we'll be in the closer presence of Christ and I think that is in line with uh, Calvin's thought here. Uh, we are taken to heaven, enter into blessed rest, conscious sharing of God's presence, awaiting the enjoyment of promised glory. The place, uh, one place where, where Calvin um, deals with this outside of the institutes is his book called Psychopanikia. Uh, that was um, 1534. It's the first uh, book of a theological nature that Calvin wrote. It's on soul sleep. The original title of Psychopanikia was The Souls of the Saints Who Die in the Faith of Christ Do Not Sleep But Live in Christ. And Calvin said he was writing this, this first book, before the first edition of the Institutes, first um, theological book he had, had written um, earlier um, on Seneca, but um, his first theological book, pretty close to the date of his conversion, we would have to say, uh, is this book on soul sleep, in which he is attempting to refute certain Anabaptists. It's not clear from 16th century history that Anabaptists all believed in soul sleep, but apparently there were some radicals or Anabaptists uh, who believed in soul sleep that Calvin had encountered 
and was attempting to refute them uh, in this book. Uh, their idea would be that at death, uh, the soul is uh, unconscious and awaits uh, the resurrection. Calvin argues uh, in Psychopanachia that uh, the scriptures state that the soul is capable of a separate existence apart from the body. In other words, he says there's evidence that the soul can exist separate from the body. And also he believes that uh, after death, Scripture teaches that there is a conscious blessedness. So it doesn't exist in a comatose state or a state of, of sleep, but um, in a state of conscious blessedness on the part of the righteous as it awaits the union uh, with its resurrection body. When you turn uh, to the souls of the, of the reprobate, Calvin says in our chapter here in the Institutes that uh, they are held in chains and suffer such torments as they deserve, 325.6, until given over to the full punishment appointed for them. So in this intermediate state, souls of the righteous rest consciously in the presence of Christ, await the future glory. Souls of the reprobate suffer, held in chains, but um, they await, too, something to come, and that is the full punishment appointed for them. What about uh, purgatory? Well, of course, Calvin is dead set against any such teaching as uh, harmful and unbiblical, which to him are the same thing. Calvin's uh, most thorough uh, refutation of purgatory doesn't occur here. He doesn't really discuss purgatory in any length in 325, but you might uh, recall in uh, Book 3, Chapter uh, 5, uh, there is a, a chapter in the context of Calvin's treatment of repentance, uh, refuting both indulgences and purgatory. That uh, chapter is taken up with those two Roman Catholic teachings. Repentance is not buying indulgences, and then that involves, implies purgatory. So true repentance is something else. So, in 3, 5, sections 6 through 10, to be specific, uh, we get um, his refutation of purgatory. He, in that entire chapter, he argues uh, first against indulgences and show that, um, he shows that indulgences are, are false, and then he says purgatory also falls with the indulgences. This is how Calvin puts it in 3, 5, 6. 
Book 3, Chapter 5, Section 6. Since the blood of Christ is the sole satisfaction for the sins of believers, the sole expiation, the sole purgation, what remains but to say that purgatory is simply a dreadful blasphemy against Christ? So, it's not scriptural, harmful, it's blasphemous teaching uh, because it um, undermines the idea that um, what Christ has done on the cross is completely sufficient to take away our sins. We don't need an extended period of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years to purge away uh, the sins that remain because Christ's expiation is sufficient. He is, it is, the sole purgation. doesn't need to be another purgation, another cleansing. The second coming of Christ. Uh, Calvin here is restrained and cautious, but uh, he certainly is clear that um, he believes in a literal, physical return of Christ. Has no interest, though, in trying to um, to guess the date. Some of the Anabaptists were doing, and uh, he shies away from describing it in detail, in terms of its nature. To Calvin, the second coming of Christ. Um, will majestically uh, display Christ's glory and will vindicate the church. That is really uh, the summation, I think, of his uh, ideas there. And the practical nature of Calvin's eschatology comes out here when he says that it serves to keep us alert, stimulate us, to Christian living and to Christian service. There should be continual expectancy, but at the same time, patience and diligence. So we wait. We wait patiently, but uh, we don't lose hope. And we're diligent uh, as we wait. I remember Steve Smallman preaching in chapel here several years ago in which he described, uh, he said that uh, his wife was talking about um, preaching in his own church in McLean in Virginia on a certain Sunday and his wife was not present at church that day because she was home waiting for her mother to come. Her mother was going to arrive from out of town And uh, Steve's wife was home waiting for her mother to come. And uh, he said that the way she was waiting uh, was to be sure that um, the house was clean, fresh flowers were in the vases, um, dinner was cooking, and everything was ready. So he applied it to our waiting for the second coming of Christ, saying we don't wait 
for the second coming of Christ like a man waits for a bus on the street corner. You know, just twiddling his thumbs, checking the time, nothing to do until the bus arrives. But we wait like my wife is waiting, diligent, working, preparing. Julie? These that might relate to some of the different Thessalonians of whether we live our lives Yes, those would be uh, important uh, verses for Calvin here. And his concern for the practical nature of theology would come into play, too, because this teaching of the return of Christ is not just theoretical. It affects what I'm doing today. Then we come uh, to the general resurrection Christ returns there will be the resurrection of the just and and the unjust Calvin uh, here um, states that even uh, non-Christians in their burial rites uh, witness to the resurrection He looks at um, non-Christians, doesn't have a lot of sources that he can use, but uh, he knows that that non-Christians too, um, some references in the Old Testament, but uh, other contemporary sources respect the body of their dead and go through certain rites in terms of uh, burial. More than uh, the non-Christian practice uh, for him, however, is the the burial rites of the patriarchs. If you read uh, the Pentateuch, you get um, a good bit of material on burying people. I've just been uh, rereading Genesis and uh, particularly studying the life of Jacob. And it's, it's really amazing how much in the Bible is about getting ready to bury somebody, where they're going to be buried, how they're going to be buried, and um, the words that are spoken. And Calvin says that this is a rare and precious aid to faith. As we read those um, sections in the Old Testament, which may seem at first glance a little irrelevant, But um, as Calvin thinks about that, uh, here are the patriarchs uh, testifying uh, to the resurrection in some early sense. Of course, you know, there's not that much direct teaching of the resurrection in the Old Testament. But uh, he thinks that the care uh, with which uh, the patriarchs buried their dead is an indication of the beginning of faith in general resurrection. The doctrine is confirmed by two things for Calvin. One is the omnipotence of God. That is, people might say, well, how could this be? That a body can be put in the grave, decay, and then be raised again. Calvin's first answer is the omnipotence of God. If God is God, then 
It's a small thing. For the God who, who made the body in the first place out of dust to remake it and bring it once again uh, to life. That's his uh, first uh, argument. His second argument uh, is Christ's resurrection. He, he does um, briefly describe evidences for the resurrection, the empty tomb, uh, the post um, ref, uh, the post um, resurrection appearances of uh, Jesus and especially the power of the gospel. I suppose those are the, the three standard traditional arguments that, that we would use for the resurrection of Christ. The tomb is empty. The living Christ appears and then the, the church advances. Well, that uh, third point, Calvin says, now truly it was not by a dead man's power that Paul was thrown prostrate on the road. That's um, 325.3. Christ's evidence is his resurrection by his action in the conversion of Paul. But uh, his, Calvin's chief point here is not to argue for the historicity of Christ's resurrection, although he does that briefly, but uh, to point out that Christ rose again, that he might have us as companions in the life to come. So, in Christ's resurrection, we see our own. We see the mirror again. We look at Christ, and we see Christ um, raised from the dead. And that is a proof and guarantee of our resurrection. Calvin does make a little bit to do um, with those references in the Gospels that when Christ rose, there were bodies that came out of the tombs in Jerusalem. Kind of a strange event that took place. Some of the tombs broke open and bodies came forth. Calvin says at Christ's resurrection, many bodies of the saints came out of the tombs as a prelude to and a pledge of our resurrection. Just a little kind of preview of what's coming. In Jerusalem, some of the tombs broke open. Some of the, the dead came forth. And uh, that was just um, a tiny prelude to the, the worldwide uh, resurrection of the dead that shall someday take place. He actually again uses the mirror image here. In this mirror, that is Christ's resurrection. We look at Christ's resurrection. It's a mirror. In this mirror, the living image of the resurrection, of our resurrection, is visible uh, to us. So as we have just celebrated Easter and the resurrection of Christ. We've looked at that. We've seen our own resurrection. That uh, is a guarantee of the resurrection of our bodies as well.
Calvin does deal somewhat with the nature of our resurrection bodies, but um, as you would expect, uh, with a good bit of restraint. Basically, he says, same yet different. Same body that we have here dies and is buried as it's raised again. It's the same body, but it's different. He uses a couple of illustrations here. He says, human flesh and animal flesh are the same in substance, but not in quality. I don't really know about that. I suppose some people may know. But is human flesh different from animal flesh in quality? Is my flesh really a lot better than my cat's flesh? Well, don't know if that's a good illustration or not. Um, his other illustration is this is about the stars. Um, he says uh, the stars are all alike, uh, but some are brighter than others. Uh, that may be a little safer illustration uh, to use. The stars are alike, and I suppose they are. Calvin really didn't know that much about astronomy, and I don't know a whole lot about it either, but some people know a lot about it. Maybe stars are different in quality. I don't know, but... Uh, Calvin thought they were the same in material, but different uh, in brilliance. So basically what he's saying is, yes, it's the same, but there's something different, more glorious about uh, the resurrection uh, body. Uh, Calvin, in this chapter, as he has done elsewhere in the Institutes, will use expressions which seem to denigrate the body. He talks of um, prison house of the flesh, and uh, he calls the body a hut. Uh, in this section, we have this hut <laughs> we live in. But uh, he balances that with with um, with more scriptural ideas. He says uh, God has dedicated our bodies to Himself as temples. So in one sense, you might think of your body as a hut, uh, but um, it's better to think of your body as a temple that belongs to God. And Calvin says in the scripture, we see the spirit no less attentive to the burial rites. goes back to that idea of uh, scripture, the spirit... Uh, giving attention to the burial rites, we see the spirit no less attentive to the burial rites than to the chief mysteries of the faith. That's uh, 325.8, which is uh, Calvin saying, the Bible has all these stories about burial rites. He gives a lot of attention to those. And that shows the importance of the body. So you can't say that Calvin completely denigrates the body and uh, elevates the, the soul. Uh, there are biblical references that compare the body to clay, and Calvin is following those references, but he certainly understands the significance of the body and the future of the body. Bodies of both Christians and non-Christians will be raised at the 
general resurrection. But Calvin says the main emphasis is on the resurrection of Christians. And uh, he has this sentence in 325.9, which I think is striking. That is, you can think of the general resurrection. Christians are raised, non-Christians are raised, but we, we put much more emphasis and our attention is focused on the raising of the bodies of believers, not uh, the raising of the bodies of the reprobate. Because, Calvin says, properly speaking, Christ did not come to destroy, but to save the world. 3.25.9. I think we need to underscore those words and apply them to the section on election that we have just studied. Properly speaking, Christ did not come to destroy, but to save the world. Final judgment. What Calvin is particularly concerned about here, I think, is to balance the idea of present temporal judgment with judgment to come. Almost always when he talks about final judgment, it's in the light of the consummation of judgment, the finishing of judgment. There will be a a final judgment day. But uh, judgment goes on all the time. So there's, there's temporal, continual judgment, and there's a final judgment day. But that final judgment day is, is delayed, Calvin says, by God, deferred in order to give time for repentance. The fact that we haven't had the second coming yet, and uh, the fact that we have not come yet to the final judgment day, Uh, should not be a source of concern for us. Like, is it ever going to happen? But uh, a source of um, gratitude to God because he is deferring judgment. When that comes, there will be no more opportunity for people to turn from their sins and to turn to Christ. But uh, now uh, there is that opportunity. The final judgment, uh, believers uh, will be judged, but not in the sense that our sins will be judged. That has already been done. Judgment for sin has already been borne by Christ, and uh, the wicked will receive the final judgment. Having been judged already, the completion of judgment will take place in the final judgment. Well, heaven and hell, uh, quickly in the last uh, few minutes. Heaven, real, literal, eternal, same is true for hell. Calvin says, uh, avoid trifling and harmful questions. Uh, The physical descriptions, um, the streets of gold and the pearly gates, and uh, for uh, hell, uh, the fire and the darkness and the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, Calvin feels that all of these are figurative. 
we should not really try to understand heaven or hell according to these descriptions. This is this is as far as as language can go. But um, they do point to the reality, which is beyond the language. Basically, the reality of heaven is that God is there. And we're in the presence of God. The reality of hell is that God is absent. And those who are in hell are separated from God uh, forever. Yes, uh, the 325... Uh, 10 and 12. So, not much you know about heaven, what it's going to be like, what it's going to look like. I have to go to Paradise Regained to find out that. (laughs) And John Milton, who's much more apt to speculate on all these things than uh, Calvin is. Let me just, as I close, read the last sentence of chapter 25, because Calvin is talking about hell. But uh, he doesn't—he um, doesn't end on that uh, somber uh, note. Uh, the last sentence, 3:25, says, "On this point." The 90th Psalm has a memorable statement. Although by his mere glance he scatters and brings to naught all mortal men, he urges his own worshipers on, the more because they are timid in this world, that he may inspire them, burdened with the cross, to press forward until he himself is all in all. So, one last challenge to us to look to the Lord and to not give up and to press forward uh, whatever uh, we might face uh, in this world. Now, you might say at the end of this chapter, we have come uh, to the, well, to the end times, to, to heaven and uh, to hell, uh, to the last days. Uh, But um, we've come to the end times, but we haven't come to the end of the institutes because um, we have big book four uh, to go. We're not going to study this in quite the detail that we have studied the first three books. But um, that moves us into the church, into the fellowship of the church, into the work of the church. And then the last chapter... Uh, into the state, into the civil government. So even though we've reached the the, the crown, you might say, in Calvin's um, treatment of eschatology, he doesn't um, he doesn't let us go to heaven yet. We've got to do our work here on this earth now, uh, as members of the church and as uh, citizens of the state. And that's what we'll look at. Uh, next uh, five classes. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Looking for more resources? Access more than 1,000 downloadable articles, sermons, and more at resourcesforlifeonline.com. Search resources by keyword, author, or Bible reference. 
grace-focused, Christ-centered resources, free to you. Resourcesforlifeonline.com.